to Isaiah chapter 61. Tonight we'll look to be studying uh, chapters 60 through 63, and we want to take a section of that passage and look at it a little more in depth this morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now and get their attention. They'll put one in your hands. It'll be marked to the passage we're studying today for your convenience, and that way you can hear the Word of God, but also read it with your own eyes, and it'll have an even greater impact. Chapter 61, book of Isaiah, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me, for what purpose? To preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of a vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. It's a pretty good exchange, by the way, isn't it? That they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he, that is God, may be glorified. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning, and we so love everything we're involved in in life to enjoy it with you, and to in you to live, move, and have our being, and, and certainly when we turn to your word and to study it, we want to do it not as an academic exercise or even something that's just happening between us and us. But, Lord, we want to commune with you as we study your word that is going to outlive the heavens and the earth and to talk it over in that way that you do in our spirit between us and you. And so would you speak to us through your word today? We pray for that wonderful miracle of revelation, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> This passage in Isaiah is messianic, and it is a prophetic declaration uh, by the Messiah concerning the anointing of the Holy Spirit that would be upon him. And we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of this particular prophecy because he plainly declared it at the beginning of his public ministry following his a baptism in the Jordan River, the 40 days and 40 nights of his temptation. Ultimately, he made his way back up into Nazareth, his hometown. And as he was in, as was his custom, uh, Luke's gospel tells us, he entered into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And when the scrolls were given to him for the reading, as a part of the synagogue services even to this day, he found the place in Isaiah where this passage was, and then he read this passage and he declared to them, this day, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. It's interesting to realize that as we read that passage here this morning, at least the early portion of it, that we're reading something that Jesus himself read, uh, familiar with, read it in that synagogue in uh, Nazareth. This passage declared the fact that the Holy Spirit would be upon 
uh, the Messiah, and further that the Messiah would receive this anointing for a particular purpose, for the purpose of preaching good tidings. And good tidings here means uh, good news. It means the gospel. When we talk about the gospel or preaching the gospel in the New Testament, the gospel literally means good news. In fact, it's even stronger than that. It means great news. And so the anointing of the Holy Spirit was upon the Messiah. Jesus declared it of himself. And the great, uh, single great uh, thing that he preached in the course, message that he preached in the course of his public ministry was the gospel. There's no greater, in my mind, description of the gospel in all of the Bible than the one that the Apostle Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He wrote, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand by which also you are saved if you hold fast that which I have preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then here's the gospel as he declares it. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And what Paul was saying was that The salvation and the forgiveness of our sins is found by putting our trust in Jesus, believing that he died upon the cross for our sins, was buried, rose again on the third day, just as the Old Testament prophecies declared that he would. His death on the cross was not just a death on the cross. His death on the cross was for our sins. His burial was proof of his death. His resurrection verified the fact that his death was sufficient to pay the price for the forgiveness of our sins. It was God's way of saying amen to everything that Jesus taught and everything that Jesus did in the course of his life and his ministry. And that gospel that Jesus died on the cross and was buried and rose again on the third day, that good news that he did those three great things in human history to introduce this gospel into human history, that gospel is the most important message that we will ever proclaim to another person as Christians. And I think it's wonderful to realize, and I think it's important to realize, that when we share the gospel with an unsaved person, we are sharing with them the greatest news they will ever hear in their life. If they win the lottery, and the lottery number is at $167 million, the news of winning that lottery will pale in comparison to the greatness of the news that we will bring to anyone that is not yet a Christian of the fact that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, was buried, rose again on the third day, and if they will simply put their faith in Him, they'll receive the forgiveness of their sins, receive everlasting life, and begin a relationship with God and all of the blessings that are bound up in that. Now, a person may not think that that's the greatest message that they've ever heard at the moment that we speak it to them, but we're to know that about the gospel. 
We're to know that when we share that with another human being, we're not keeping this life that we have with God to ourselves. We're not greedy uh, concerning it. We want everybody to know this, even if they don't know that they have just heard the greatest message they will ever hear in their life, what the Apostle Paul and what Isaiah wants us to understand, the Holy Spirit wants us to understand, is we have shared with them the greatest thing that they'll ever hear in their life. Sharing the gospel is the single highest use of speech in the life of a Christian to a non-Christian. We will never ever say anything more needed to them in their life than the gospel. How they can be saved and how they can be forgiven of their sins by trusting in Christ. And what follows in this passage here, a famous passage, one of the reasons that Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is known as the fifth gospel. It's so full of Jesus. And one of the, the great things about this passage that we're reading here about Jesus is that what follows here in concerning the gospel is a description of what the gospel does or what it produces in a human life. The fact that this gospel is a life-transforming gospel. When we study this this morning, I want in this passage to accomplish three things. If you sit here today and you are not yet a Christian, that what I want you to hear out of this passage is what is found in this salvation. All of the things that God wants to bring into your life, not a week from now, not a month from now, not a year from now, not at the moment of your death, but what He wants to introduce into your life this morning, in an instant, if you will let Him do that. For those of us who are Christians, I want us to look at this, and as we go through this description of the gospel, the power of it, what it accomplishes in a human life, to once again in the privacy of our own heart, in the privacy of the seat that we sit in this morning, to relive that power, to remember your own testimony, and to remember how it is that He came in and lifted you up out of a spiritual poverty and all of the things that we're going to be looking at here in just a moment, to experience it once again. I don't think that we share our testimony enough The average Christian doesn't. It's interesting when you read through the Scriptures how often the Apostle Paul shared his testimony when he spoke about the gospel and the power of God because he never lost sight of the the miracle that he was, what he once was, how God saved him, what he became as a result of that salvation. And one of the problems with never declaring our testimony to anyone or not even considering it ourselves, is we lose awe over the, the, the magnitude and the beauty, the majesty, the power that has been exercised in our life and what we have experienced. And so to just stop and remember as we go through these things, that happened in my life. And some of these things will have happened more in somebody else's life and less in yours and vice versa and all the way around. But all of us have experienced these things. And then for us as Christians, number three, to realize that as we run into people in the coming week who are poor in spirit, they're mourning, they're in need of comfort, 
that the greatest thing that we can tell them in the greatness of their need, which is spiritual, and they don't even realize it, is to speak to them the gospel. We say so many things in the course of a week to so many people. We talk about so much stuff in the course of a week and trying to comfort people, trying to encourage people, trying to bring hope into their life and doing everything short of sharing the gospel with them when the gospel is the answer to all of the greatest needs, all of the deepest needs in any human being. Everybody has a right to hear the gospel. Now, what they do with it, I have no control over that. That's not my responsibility. But my responsibility as a Christian is to make sure that everybody knows that God loves them, they need to be saved, and God has provided a finished salvation for them. They may not receive the Lord at the moment that I'm talking with them. They may even punch me in the nose. But God knows how to make much of His gospel. And it may be two years, 18 months, five years down the road, in the middle of the night, where they will then listen. It'll come into their mind. They'll be reminded of it. And then they'll know where to turn in the greatness of their need. I was, I shared, uh, there was a fellow that was putting in a drip hose in our yard. It's about 18 months ago. And I was talking with him about the Lord and asking him, you know, well, what's the meaning of life for you and this and that? And, well, I really think this. And so we got in this conversation and talking and everything and uh, shared the gospel with him. And then I needed more of that hose, and I didn't know where to find it. It was brown and every 12 inches and one gallon per uh, blah, blah, blah. And so I was having trouble finding it. So I had to go through his company to find him. And I said, I don't know if you remember me, but you put that hose in my yard. He said, you're the preacher. (laughs) And he remembered. I don't know if he accepted the Lord yet, but people remember these things. We remembered these things. And so with the realization that, uh, that this is still the great need in people's lives and not to just speak to them in a surface manner in terms of of helping them, but really getting to the bottom of their need and the deepest needs in life are only met uh, through the gospel. We notice here that what Jesus desires to do in every human life, what the gospel will accomplish, tells us in verse 1 that it makes the rich person poor. Uh, I mean, it makes uh, the poor person rich, rather. We would get that right, right? It makes the poor person rich. I heard a joke earlier uh, this week. I was listening to an old tape by Warren Wiersbe. Warren Wiersbe has quite a, a sense of humor, but he told this joke about a poor rabbi that I thought was very funny. So this poor rabbi, he's sleeping in his bed one night, and he heard a noise in his house, and he called out, Who is, Who's there? And a voice responded, a burglar. And uh, the rabbi said, what are you looking for? And the burglar said, money. And the poor rabbi said, wait, I'll get up and help you. (laughs) How many of you know that feeling? (laughs) Now, the poor in this passage, it doubtless includes the materially poor, but it also includes those, refers supremely to those who are living in a spiritual poverty. Jesus declared, 
What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? In other words, Jesus is saying that if someone were to come up to you and offer you the entire world in exchange for your soul, and every square inch of the earth, every city, every store, every bit of merchandise in the stores, all of the wealth, all of the power found in the entire earth, and you took that offer in exchange for your soul, Jesus says, you will have made a terrible, terrible deal. Jesus declares about your soul that it is of greater worth than all of the world put together. Isn't that interesting? So many of us, we didn't value our soul at all until Christ came into our life. He showed us the value of, of, our, of our soul. And it wasn't until He came into our lives that we began to see that we were selling our souls for nothing for rocks, for baubles, for nickels, and for dimes, and, and for nothing. And Jesus comes in and tells us that's the value of our soul. Would you put that kind of a value on your soul this morning? And yet, if you don't, Jesus does and tells us that we need to view our soul in the same way. And when a person becomes a Christian, it doesn't matter if they have two quarters to rub together if you were to offer them the whole world in exchange for their soul, all that is found in the world in exchange for their salvation and their souls, in exchange for the miracle that Christ has done in their life in saving them, they would decline the offer. Why would a poor person who doesn't have two quarters to rub together, the person that would be most vulnerable as a Christian to accept the offer of the whole world and all of its wealth in exchange for their soul, why would a, a poor man, a poor Christian man or woman, decline that kind of an offer except for the fact that they consider themselves immeasurably rich by other terms, and that what was being offered to them materially pales in comparison to the spiritual richness that they experience and live in every single day. It is a proclamation to the world that I am rich beyond imagination, rich beyond description, richer than than anything that could be bought with all of the world bound up and given to me all at once. And every Christian has that sense of how rich Christ has made us with a wealth that exceeds what the world defines as wealth in very, very narrow terms. As God is my witness, but by the grace of God, I declare to you this morning that if someone were to come up to me and offer me the whole world and all that is in it in exchange for what the gospel has brought into my life, not just my salvation, but the life that is mine on a daily basis because of what has come into my life because of Christ, I would absolutely decline it. And I know you would do the same thing. Why? Because we know from experience that it is not spirit, material wealth that makes 
a person rich in life. It's only found in knowing God, in loving God, in being in His uh, will. And we are the richest people in the whole world in terms of what constitutes true riches. And Jesus has made us uh, rich in this way. And we give Him praise for it. This gospel, He tells us further in verse 1, it heals the brokenhearted. Have you noticed that there's brokenheartedness that going around in the world today? I remember when I was a a kid, many of you will remember it as well, I had a little transistor radio and a general electric transistor radio, and it ran off of a 9-volt battery. And I loved music and, and I listened to it all of the time with that silly radio up against my ear. I still love uh, music, and it was the uh, early in my, when I was a child, it was a, a constant uh, desperation to find enough loose change and turn in enough pop bottles and all uh, to keep myself a nine-volt batteries so the music could keep on uh, coming. One of the things I noticed very early as a kid, and I'm sure that you have as well, is how many songs are written about love. So many songs written about love. It just seems like seemed to me like it was an inexhaustible theme. I mean, I thought to myself, how many different songs can you write about love? But they did, and they did, and they did, and they still do. But then I also noticed as I listened to songs and the lyrics and all, that if songs about love held the number one spot for song themes, and it did, then songs about broken hearts held spot number two. And that's a reality in life. These songs are written in order to impact us emotionally, where we live, our life experiences. That's where the connection occurs. And so we fall in love, we experience love, but everyone in life experiences heartbreak uh, as, as uh, well. We all experience a broken heart. And it's not just uh, related to relationships in life. And so where do you take a broken heart for healing? In this world, since it's since it's pandemic, since it's everywhere, where do we go when our heart breaks? I mean, really breaks, not just a bump in the road and something that takes me a weekend to get over. But I mean, when our heart really breaks, where do we go for comfort in that kind of a circumstance, that kind of a a season in our life? Where do we go for that kind of healing? And the gospel tells us to go to Jesus because the brokenheartedness that's spoken of here supremely in the passage is not about some girl we had a crush on in the fifth or the sixth grade or in the eleventh grade or whatever it might be. But it's talking about the brokenheartedness that has supremely to do with the grief and the pain and the guilt that we feel due to our sin. Where do we go there? When we break our own hearts. When we disappoint ourselves. When we do something and we say, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe what is now a part of my history, what's attached to my identity, what is attached now to my history. How does uh, a person receive comfort and healing from related to the sin and the shame and the guilt of our past? And it's the gospel contains that healing and that comfort. 
And how does Jesus comfort and how does he heal? By providing us with the forgiveness of sins. We talk about it so often, the forgiveness of sins, that it's like it doesn't even make an impact anymore. Our sins are forgiven. And the Bible declares that not only has he forgiven us, but he separated our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west. We will never come into contact with it again. If God had said he separated our sins from us as far as the north is from the south, they would only be separated from us the diameter of the earth. Because you take a globe and you go to the north, and you only go north so far before you turn the corner and you're going south again. But when you take a globe and you go east, you always go east. You never stop going east. And when you go west, you always go west. You never go, go east. In other words, it is a way deliberately that God has spoken of saying it is infinitely, permanently, completely separated from our lives. That's the greatness of the forgiveness that he brings into our lives. Never to come into contact with it ever again. And Jesus gives us a fresh start. And not only does he give us a fresh start, but he makes us into a new person. Paul wrote it, Therefore, if any man be in Christ... He's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. And we know it immediately that a change has occurred in our lives when we become a Christian. You remember that change when you were born again? I'm not the same person. The blues are a little bluer. The greens are a little greener. I've got a lift in my step. I've got hope in my heart. And all of these things that are immediately introduced, all of the ways that God lets us know that a miracle has happened in our lives. Not mind over matter. It isn't some kind of positive thinking or something we've come up with on our own. The Holy Spirit has come into our lives. I'm not who I was an hour ago. I'm not who I was a minute ago ago and we experience it we know that it's happened immediately and then others will come to recognize it over time and they look at us and they say concerning me for example Damien's not the same person he used to be he's changed I was a a, a, a lineman for the phone company when I got saved and there was a change in my life Everybody knew that Damien got religion. It was a matter of whether it was going to stick or not. We've seen this before. In six weeks, he'll be back talking about the same things everybody else is talking about at lunchtime or whatever it might be in the break room and all. And yet, there was the recognition, though, in my life, in your life as well, that a change has occurred. And when a person becomes a Christian, God will so change that person that he will not allow the sinner, the, the sin we, sinner that we once were or the sins that we once committed to become our final identity in this life. God is such a great forgiver of sins that he comes in and he not only forgives us of our sins, he comes in and, not, and so dramatically changes our lives that we become a trophy of his grace And our lives now provide other sinners with the hope that what he has done in us, that he will also do in them. And from the Bible, I think supremely of the Apostle Paul in this regard. The Apostle Paul was a deeply, deeply religious man, but he was a horrible person, a horrible, horrible, horrible 
person before he came to know Christ. He was killing, he was having people delivered to death for simply being a Christian. He would take people and do whatever was necessary, men, women, children, in order to get them to deny Christ. That's, That's the worst thing you could ever do to another human being. And he was doing it. And the guilt of his sin, he was just a, just an animal, just a horrible, horrible person, I've, as I've said. And ultimately, he would come to declare himself as chief among sinners. I think some people would argue with that. I wouldn't argue with it. I think he was a worse sinner than me. But not than some of you in this room. Wait a second. God's giving me a, just a couple names. Just stand if, if you... You, when you hear your name, just go ahead and stand right now. Um, and yet for all that the Apostle Paul was, how do we remember him today? Do we even think about his sin? Do we even think about the monster that he was? Do we even think about him in his life prior to trusting in Jesus? We don't. We remember him for the person that God made him into. And his name is gold to us. And to be confident and strong in God's forgiveness isn't to minimize the sin of our past, but to remember and to stand upon the fact that Jesus' blood and his forgiveness are greater still and that he does make us into a new creation. And how wonderful to realize that in this sin-filled, guilt-filled, regret-filled world that we live in, that Jesus longs to do what he did in the Apostle Paul's life in everybody's life. And he'll do it in your life this morning if you haven't let him do that yet in, in, in giving your life to the Lord. We notice third in verse 1, that this gospel brings liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So Jesus not only provides the forgiveness of sins, if that's all he provided to me, I would be eternally grateful. But that's not all that he does. He doesn't just provide the forgiveness of sins, but he also then provides us with freedom from sin. To commit sin is always to become a slave of that sin. All sin has a hook. Every sin has a hook. Every sin enslaves. Every sin has an addicting, enslaving aspect to it. And every sinner is a slave to their sin. Even if the culture declares... That sin is not really a sin and that it isn't really an enslaving act that a person is engaging in, that it does not develop an ever greater appetite in that person's life until ultimately it comes to dominate their life and to consume their life. And that's the world's way of dealing with sin today and dealing with the addictive nature of sin and the slavery of sin. What the world does today in our country, at least the Western world, is they typically will rename it. And then they go to great lengths to remove any negative stigma related to that sin. 
to free it from any negative connotations placed upon it by God or by the Bible. And then they finally get the, they go so far as to have the chutzpah to then declare the expression of the sin to be actually an expression of freedom. Talk about having the whole thing backwards. An expression of freedom from the narrowness and the bigotry of the Bible. Until the whole world becomes one giant melting pot of addiction on one hand and one giant rehab center on the other hand. And that's what our nation is becoming. We've got not only rehab centers opening, they're so, they're for drugs and, drug and alcohol, you can't find a space in those things for a hundred miles in all directions. If you've got a loved one or a family member that you want to get into one of these places, they are jammed and they've got a waiting list. And it's not just here. It's all around the United States. But it isn't just that area, drug and alcohol, but how many people are engaged in so many other sins that are now going into clinics in order to get freed from that sin And while all of it's going on, right under, all of it is happening, this flurry of activity, right under the, the, with the, in ignorance of the most obvious fact of all, and that is that sin always leads to slavery, and it always leads to bondage. And how can I get free from this sin, from this slavery, from this Bondage, And we come to a place where we remove the Bible from people's daily contact within the culture, and then pretty soon no one knows where to turn for deliverance from the bondage of their sin, that, that, and the bondage that their sin has brought them into when everyone told them that it was good and it was okay and it was liberty, and you go, you know, and do it, and... And everyone told him it wouldn't turn out how it did. And then now when I'm enslaved to my sin, they're long gone. And where do I find uh, someone to help deliver me from it? And the gospel is the ability to do it. And I think it's so important for this hour in human history for people to understand about sin. That sin is not bad because it's forbidden. People think that sin is bad only because God has forbidden it in His Word. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It is forbidden because it's bad. And it's so sad that we live in a culture here today where um, there isn't that understanding of it and we wait until people become casualties in massive numbers and then they're forced to discover that on their own. Jesus said to those who believe in him, to Christians, he said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, the Jewish religious leaders, they said, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say that you will uh, will be made free? And Jesus answered and said to the Pharisees, Verily, verily, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And how does Jesus make a person free from sin? The Apostle Paul wrote in his second epistle, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then here it is. As his divine power 
has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us by glory and virtue. When we put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit then comes into our lives, providing us with the will to do and the power to do of God's good pleasure. He provides us with a supernatural desire to live the life that's described in the Word of God. And then he provides us with the power then to fulfill those desires in our lives, to live a holy life, a free life, a life that's free from the bondage of sin. It isn't that Christians are immune to sin. It isn't that we aren't uh, as tempted as we once were in life. We are tempted by sin, and we will be all the way to the day that we enter into heaven. But we now have, because of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we have an upward lifting power in our lives that is greater than the downward pull of sin. It's like being on a jet uh, airplane. Gravity is attempting to pull that plane down. Gravity is still in operation. It is a powerful, powerful force. But the greater power of the jet engines allows it to defy the gravity. And so it is with the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. Sin still wants to pull us down into bondage, but the Holy Spirit provides us with an even greater pull in our lives to God, to obedience to God, to a life of holiness, to a life of freedom. And the gospel has the power to free sinners and then lead us into a life of freedom, the life that we're intended to live by God. Bring all of your addictions to God, whether they're socially acceptable or not. I did. Every Christian does when we come to know him. Don't pretend that you don't have needs. Don't pretend that if you're in the place today, you don't have bondages, that you're in way over your head. You don't know how you got here, or maybe you do know how you got here, but you know you can't get you out. And 20 other people have tried to get you out of the life or the bed that you've made for yourself. But there's hope for you. Christ has done this in people's lives for thousands of years, and he will do it in your life too. There's hope because of the gospel. Never, ever, never, ever not come to Christ or to come to salvation because you think to yourself, I've got to clean myself up in order to come to the Lord. Or you read the Bible and you say, I could never live this life. God knows we can't live this life. When he comes into your life, he will give you a desire for him and his word that is even greater than your desire for sin. You say, there can't be a desire in my life that could ever be introduced into my life that is greater than the desire I have for the sin that has me in bondage. But there is. The Holy Spirit is greater than even the bondage that you find yourself in, even the greatness of that desire. And he will bring a greater desire into your life in order to bring you into that freedom. It's real, and it's yours this morning if you need it. Notice fourth in verse 2. It, this gospel lets people know the acceptable year of the Lord, that this is the day of salvation. This is the time of salvation. In other words, 
it declares that every person in the world can be saved right now if they want to. The door is open. Everyone can be saved that wants to be saved. You don't have to take any classes. You don't have to climb the Himalayas. You don't have to whip yourself at night with a a cat of nine tails. There's no penance that's required. And all you need to do is come to Him, and He will save you. Do you realize that if every person in this world, every single person in this world, 7 billion people in the world today, if every single one of them turned to God and asked to be saved today by putting their faith in Christ, God would save every single one of them because this is the acceptable time. This is the opportunity to be saved. Every morning of every day, we wake up to that potential. I can be saved and forgiven today. God is willing to do it. And the only reason that it doesn't happen in a person's life is because they're unwilling to be saved. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish. His will is your salvation. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And But what Isaiah is declaring here as well is that while this opportunity to be saved is available to everyone today, the opportunity will not always be available because death marks the end of the opportunity to be saved. Death seals my eternal destiny. It cannot be changed after I die. It is appointed unto men once to die and then face the judgment, the writer of the book of Hebrews said. And because none of us knows the day of our death, the Bible teaches that today is the day of salvation. You don't have tomorrow. You don't have next week. It's not guaranteed to you. You don't know what's going to happen in your life. The only day we have control over is today. But if we handle today properly concerning salvation, then there isn't a need for another day. It doesn't make any sense to put it off for another day. And so this is the day, the time of acceptance, but the day, the only time you have is the day that you have right now and the importance of using that opportunity to be saved. The gospel allows every person to be saved today who desires to be saved. Notice fifth in verse 2 that it warns of God's vengeance. The gospel declares that Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection saves us not only into something, a relationship with God, into everlasting life and so forth, but it also saves us from something. And what the salvation of this gospel saves us from is from the wrath and the judgment that our sin deserves. And this is super important to understand. Because if I don't know what I need to be saved from, then I won't know why I need to be saved. There won't be an urgency about my salvation. There won't be a sense of of need related to my salvation. It's the bad news that makes us eager to heed God's good news, His gospel. And the bad news isn't just that I'm a sinner. That's bad enough. The bad news is worse. 
The bad news isn't just that I am a sinner, but it is that my sin also merits judgment. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. John the Baptist declared of Jesus in John chapter 3, he said, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Why? Because the wrath of God abides upon our sin. God has to judge sin. You look at the world around us. It's so funny. People, get, they just have this attack over the fact that God has a standard of right and wrong and that he judges violations of his law. And we think, what kind of a God? How could a God of love and blah, 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 all of the nonsense that just spews out. But every day in the world that we live in, we have laws. We have definitions of right and wrong. We have judicial systems. We have law enforcement. We not only have laws, but we enforce those laws. And when those laws are violated, there's a punishment for the violation of those laws. And there's the recognition that if we did not have laws and we did not enforce laws, the whole world would fall into anarchy. It would turn into a world nobody would want to live in, nobody could be safe in. And so we accept it about one another. We accept it about the world that we live in. But then when God is the same way, in a higher, more beautiful way, everybody has an attack over how unloving it is, how wrong it is. Sin has destroyed the earth. It's ruined the earth. And God will not allow sin to ruin heaven. Sin must be judged or God is not a righteous God. And he is a righteous God. Now, what would be unfair? Well, it wouldn't even be unfair. But what would be unmerciful and ungracious is if God judged our sin and did not give us a way of salvation to get out from under the consequences of our sin. But he has. So to continue in a life in which I've not received the forgiveness of my sins and salvation and have the wrath of God lifted off of my life because of my sin is no longer God's fault, but it is my fault. I am personally responsible for it. Ah, now we get to the core of the issue. All of the arguments don't really have to do with the grace of God and the love of, of God. They all have to do with personal responsibility, which is an abhorrent thought increasingly in the culture that we live in. And so the fight against God being righteous, the fact that our sin does deserve judgment because it holds us responsible for our sin and responsible for the choice that we make to either receive salvation or to reject salvation. Praise the Lord today that for the fact that Jesus not only saves us and forgives us of our sins, but he removes the vengeance, he removes the judgment of God that our sin deserves. And we never have to give it another thought concerning our future. Notice in verse 2 further, it comforts those who mourn. Jesus taught, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So as as Christians in the world, we look at the world and we see it uh, deteriorating 
morally and spiritually. I'm not talking about finances. I'm not talking about politics. I'm not talking about these things. I'm talking about something that a Christian has a right to observe and is going to impact a Christian who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We look at the world and we see things are in a, going in a wrong direction morally and spiritually. And because we're born again by the Holy Spirit, we know there's no future in that. We know there's implications associated with that, that it always leads uh, to trouble. So we notice that and we notice the direction that the, the world is uh, going in. And when we notice all of that, happening. We don't fall into a terminal case of the ain't it awfuls, but we realize that we possess a hope that's beyond this world. And this salvation comforts those who mourn. Our hope isn't in this world. Like Abraham, we look for a city whose builder and maker is God. Jesus taught us to pray on a daily basis, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then here it is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The realization that God is going to establish his kingdom in the world. And does that I pray that prayer on a daily basis as a part of my devotional life. I'll tell you, after all of these years, you would think that when you come to um, that section of it, uh, of, of the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that it would just be wrote. Every day I pray it, it blesses my heart. It comforts those who mourn. And then notice in verse 3, it gives this gospel beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, a garment of praise for heaviness. That is, it provides us with a joy that's greater than every cause for grief or mourning in this world. In the Old Testament, ashes were a sign of grief. You would put it on your face or you would put it on your clothes and over your head and all. It was evidence of grief. And at the core of all of this Christian life, for all of the mountaintops and all of the valleys, there is this deep abiding joy that we possess that no one can take away from us. No matter what the world becomes, it is the joy of our salvation. And it is a joy, it is a song that God has brought into our lives that uh, it, 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 that he personally has done so and that the world cannot extinguish it. Jesus spoke to us as his disciples and he said, These things I've spoken unto you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. He said elsewhere in that same Gospel of John, These things I've spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. And there's tribulation going on for Christians all around the world. But he doesn't stop there. He said, but be of good cheer, be of joy, for I have overcome the world. This gospel brings a joy into our lives that is needed in a human being's life that is greater than whatever the circumstances of life might be. And I close in verse 3 with a final point. 
of this gospel, that it makes us trees of righteousness, the plantings of the Lord, that he might be glorified. This gospel allows our roots to go, uh, uh, the roots of our lives to go deep, deep, deep into something that's good and something that's righteous, the will of God, the word of God, and then it produces a life that is righteous and solid as a result. God have could have given us a gospel that, again, only provided us with forgiveness. Yes, my sins are forgiven, but I would still be forced to live the same old sinful life that I was living, addicted to the same sins, addicted to the same wrongdoing in all. But he hasn't done that. He's done something better. He's provided us with the forgiveness of sins, as I've mentioned earlier. But then he also gives us the desire to live this different kind of life, a righteous life, couples it with the power to do so, and then our roots going deep, deep into his word, into his truth, and a beauty and a quality of life coming forth from our lives. And not only the people that are around us do they get to experience that, but we're the first partakers of it. We, real, we love the person that God is making us into. I'm so glad I'm not the person I used to be. I'm talking about last week. I'm not talking about 1980. Isn't it wonderful the person that God is making us into week by week? And it's because we're able for our roots to go down into something holy and something that is righteous that produces that. And so this morning... If you're saved, praise the Lord here and may the afterglow of it be on each of our lives the rest of the day. Praise the Lord for how this gospel has transformed us from head to toe, inside and out, past, present, future, reaches out into all, all directions in our life, bringing glory and bringing beauty, the power of the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God under salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And to just go through a list like this and to think about, this is amazing. And yes, I have experienced all of that. And yes, this is a wonderful salvation that Christ has provided to me and to give him the praise for it. But then for us as Christians, there was a Spirit of God that was on Jesus to preach the gospel to people with these news. This news, not to talk to them about the Golden State Warriors, not to talk to them about the Raiders or the 49ers or the economy or the upcoming election or about the latest television show or movie we watched and all. But when we run into people in the course of this next week who are mourning, who are brokenhearted, who are poor in spirit, who possess no hope, to look and to realize the answer for their life, the answer for their problems is this gospel, and then to declare this gospel to them. Which brings us to those of you who sit here today and you are not yet a Christian. God wants to bring all of this and more into your life today by simply putting your trust in Jesus. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service. And they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to do exactly that. Bring all of your need. 
Bring all of your little old messy self to God this morning. Just like all of the rest of us did. There's hope for you. An amazing life right on the other side of doing the greatest thing that you could ever do to bless the heart of God. And that is to put your faith and trust in His Son for the forgiveness of your sins. Take advantage of the opportunity. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we bless you for this good news and we thank you for a chance to just walk down memory lane here today and to think about the miracle that you have produced in our lives, the miracle that we are for one reason alone, and that is our faith in your Son. Thank you for this good news. We pray that you would put it upon our lips, Lord, and not to offer our own wisdom or the wisdom of man in people's lives in the course of this next week in the face of the greatness of their needs, but to be quick to share this gospel with them and the hope that is found in it, the power that's behind it, and the miracle that you will make of their lives. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to do this as some kind of theoretical exercise or something by blind faith, but to know that what you have done in us, you will do in them as well. Loose our lips to preach your gospel and to share this wonderful, wonderful hope with every person who has need in and around our lives this week. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.